Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 98 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Stu Brooks. I'm a bass player and producer. Play for Danny Elfman, Perry Farrell. I have my own band called Dub Trio. I'm sitting oh, in cool. Toronto at Dynalone Records. Yeah, I was telling you before, I have a long history with Dynalone and Joel because I'm one of the two guys that signed Alexis on Fire and City in Color. So to see Dynalone take off the way it has has been, it's been an incredible journey for that label for sure. How are you tied to them? Is the dub trio on Dynalone also or not at all? Yes. My initial introduction to Dynalone was through Dub Trio. We did a record in 2019 with Dynalone called The Shape of Dub to Come. <laughs> Great title. Great mm. title for now. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, we kind of took inspiration from Ornette Coleman, The Shape of Jaws to Come, and refused The Shape of Pub to Come. So it's great. So I'm really curious about your origin story, because in getting ready for this conversation, your past seems to be a bit of a mystery. So maybe oh, we'll really? take this opportunity oh, that's cool. to break it down. You're Canadian, like me. You're Canadian. Yes, I grew up in Toronto, mostly in Oakshaw. Okay. And the yeah. Burbs. And the Burbs, yeah. Went to uh, and, school out there. And what brought you to the electric bass? Was that your first instrument? My first instrument was piano at a young age, and then I got into singing in a choir, and I was always interested in music, so I was participating in school pretty enthusiastically. And then the school that I was at in Oakville had a guitar teacher that would come onto campus and do privates, and I started taking lessons from him. And he had said early on in my lessons that he could picture me doing music as a career. And well, immediately I was like blown away that he had said that. And shortly after that, I left that school and moved on to focus on music. What made him say that? Do you know? If you can reflect back on what your lessons were like, what would make mm. a teacher say that to a student? It was probably my dedication, I think, and my parent passion for it. It came naturally, the bass guitar itself. So I think he just saw like a glimmer in my eye. I don't know. Were you one of those kids who would go home and practice for hours and hours, or were you not that person? I was, yeah. I was, totally. Especially in that, those days, yeah. I think if, the, if I had the internet back then, I don't know if I would have been practicing as much as I you did. know, there's so much distraction, right? It's amazing when you think about how things like that will impact the type of music you play, or if you will stick to an instrument, because, yeah, I think there was very little else to do in the burbs where I lived as well. Mm -hmm. And also the access to music books now and like other lessons and bits of information on YouTube or, or things like that. We didn't have that when I was starting out. And it's just amazing, like the access that young musicians have now. It's just going to raise the bar, I think, and tower it per capita. It's so true. I hadn't thought about that. But you're right that I would go to these local music stores and there was not even a full section of bass guitar books. But there was right. a lot for guitar, a lot for piano, a lot for sax, nothing. And you would 
at least I would, I would pick up these books. And even if it wasn't a genre I necessarily liked, that was just what there was. And I would learn funk lines and jazz lines when I was really a metalhead punk kid, only because there wasn't much else in terms of content. Uh, now that's funny. Mm-hmm. Now on YouTube, it's just, it's, it's a free for all. Yep. And then luckily also like around that time I had met a professional bass player in Oakville of all places. His name's Prakash John. I'm not sure if you know him. He's a Toronto guy and still is to this day. He was in Parliament Funkadelic with George Clinton, Lou Reed's band, Alf Cooper's band, and a Canadian band called Bush in the seventies. He saw me play with a local band in Oakville. Like when I was like 15, 16 years old, he took me under his wing and really helped propel me forward towards a music career. There's a great story in there, Stu. I don't know if you know this, but in Canada, when Bush, the alternative 90s band came out, they couldn't be called Bush in Canada because of that band. They were called Bush X when they came out in Canada. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, that's weird. I remember Bush X. And then later on when I had met Prakash, he told me that. And I think they had a lawsuit and I think they were rewarded some money and donated that which is pretty cool. But if you get a chance, check out Bush, check out anything Prakash John did. He's on Chocolate City and a couple other Parliament records. He's on the Lou Reed's live record called Rock and Roll Animal. And it opens with a bass solo. And I believe that was his first show with the band. And yeah, he's a monster bass player. And he used to play at the Orbit Room like every Tuesday night for 15 years or something like that. The Orbit Room was Alex Lifeson's bar on College Street. And I grew up going down there to go see him play. Like we would drive down together and he basically mentored me in my teens. Well, if this goes well, maybe you'll be kind enough to do an introduction. We could have him on the show too. It'd be great. Oh, I'd <laughs> love, yeah, of course I'd love to. I'm sure he'd be happy to do it. It'd be great. So there's a couple of things I want to unpack a little bit. You were taking lessons at school, public or private school. You said it was a guitar teacher. When did the bass get introduced to you? I was in ninth grade and my neighbor had a bass and we were good friends. He let me try it out and it came naturally. Just like holding the bass felt good. And he said I could borrow it for a few days and that was so nice. His name's Rob. Rob was so generous. And then like within a few weeks, I had my own bass and that was it. Did you know what the instrument was? Were you familiar with it or was it more a function of there's a lot of guitarists and I should probably yeah, pick up no, an instrument that was solid point. My closest friends had a band and they didn't have a bass player. It wasn't like a, I was drawn to the bass before that at any time, really. It was like circumstantial. It worked out very nicely for me, I think. I loved it. I've had a lot of these conversations over a decade with some amazing players. Is it Another artist that inspires you to keep going, was it a genre of music? What were you listening to at the time that took you further down the rabbit hole? Because I've noticed in conversations, and I know it happened to me, that once I started playing it, Mm -hmm. I saw and thought about music differently. I was seeking out different types of music than I would have if I wasn't playing that instrument. Yeah, totally. I guess like I was falling in love with music at the time, and that was like Soundgarden and... Guns N' Roses and Metallica, Faith No More, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, that kind of stuff. We, we were kind of our, the same cloth, yeah. Yeah, and so when I started getting more proficient at the bass, kind of opened up a world of possibilities. It's like, well, let's see what 
Lee is into. And he has a broad spectrum of influences, which then like opened up so many things for me as well. Maybe on the punk rock side, but also on the funk side too. I think from like listening to Higher Ground or Mother's Milk, I went to Higher Ground by Stevie Wonder. And then I became obsessed with Stevie Wonder. And then I got in touch with Prakash and he showed me the ways of James Jamerson. And so then I got into Motown and started obsessing over Marvin Gaye. And Prakash was in Toronto, like playing all sorts of R&B, old school R&B. A lot of growth in a small amount of time and a lot of retaining knowledge about music from a different perspective. Like, okay, now I'm going to listen because now I'm a bass player and I can appreciate music in a different way. Like you're saying, like from another angle. It's interesting too, because the bands that you're talking about tend to be pretty bright in the bass tone. Mm -hmm. And then when you start getting into stuff like Stevie Wonder, James Jameson, you're getting into the muted notes, the flat wounds. It's a big difference than that brightness that you're typically enjoying as a kid or just someone who likes music. It's unique. Then it was kind of hard to know how to play certain things because I didn't really have the sound that was like similar. <laughs> and I didn't know how exactly. to get that sound necessarily. So like I was playing along to like Chili Peppers records, but he's got a music man. I had a sender. Sounds different. I was playing finger style and everybody around me was saying, play fingers. But I'm playing along to Jane's Addiction songs, but I wasn't quite getting the tone because his tones are so bright and playing. At the so bright. Levels. Yeah. So it took some time, but I got more and more into James Jamerson, I think, and turned to flat wounds and started evolving. And that's when uh, I was sort of getting into jazz too and got into Ray Brown and like I loved Ron Carter and stuff like that. And then my high school also was a prep school. It was a private school. They told me about Berkeley in Boston. I started, I had like a goal set. That's my sight set on a path. And that was nice to have like some sort of path set for me like that. and goals to reach. And I eventually started prepping for Berkeley. Moved down to Boston. Is that where you went? Did, did you go study in Berkeley? Yeah. So I went down to Boston and was there for four years and then moved down to New York a couple of years later. Who was running the bass program when you were there? Was it Steve Bailey? No, it was Rich Appleman. Okay. What was that like? It was very exciting. So I coming from Toronto, going down to Boston and it was apparent that everybody around was a musician. Like the monsters. It's a guitar player. It's like everybody, <laughs> like the guy, yeah. the, 7-Eleven across the street. He's a guitar player too. You know, everybody. So that was very inspiring. And there's a lot of competition there. So I continued on my path, like with six to 10 hours of practice a day. But then I was going to classes and I was on top of the world. Eventually I joined a band while I was down there and started working and started getting some, a little bit of popularity and was far. And so my classes started going by the wayside a little bit, my focus on studies, but I was like in the field doing it. So eventually I, I dropped out of Berkeley and moved down to New York. Oh, do you regret not finishing? Not whatsoever. I have no regrets about my Berkeley experience. It's amazing. I think Berkeley's like the greatest trade school in the world because it's yeah. genuinely hard to get into. It's not the thing where if you just pay, you can go. And if you go, and even if you can get in, you're surrounded by monsters. I yeah. go to Boston all the time and I will just walk around that campus. You walk into a music store there and 
just forget about it. Every mm-hmm. person playing is a beast there. It's unbelievable. Yeah. This tour that I'm on right now stopped in Boston about a week ago. And yeah, I walked around there and there's beautiful memory lane. And there's yeah, so like a Berkeley bookstore that I stopped in. It's still there. On Newbury. Um, it's all on Boylston. Isn't it on Boylston, yeah, sorry, near, sorry. Uh, just near Newbury. And, yeah, yeah. But I tended, I think I disagree. Like, I think it's kind of easy to get into if you have the money, but they will easily weed out the weak links. Like, if you're not really meant to be there, right? you won't last a semester. You won't last a s- to the second semester. So I think that's the vibe because you can, if you're, it's such a great environment. I think people can explode with their on progress once they're there. And hey, side note, I met my wife at Berkeley. And, oh, no way. That's crazy. Yeah. And then like all the, like to that point, like it's like the people that you meet is the school there. That's the best part of it is the network that you gain from attending. And I highly re- recommend it. And try to get there, go for it. And uh, when I moved to New York, the next gig that got me the artist visa that I needed to stay in the U.S. came from a recommendation that was from a Berkeley friend who was an engineer in a mixing session. And was like, "We need to recut these this bass part." They're like, "Do you know a funky bass player?" And somebody brought my name up, and I came in, and then I had the credit that got me the artist visa that I needed. I'm curious about. The phase of getting into the instrument too, you mentioned people like Ron Carter and as you got into jazz, but there's also this lane of real players. Jacko Pastorius would be one of them. John Patitucci. Did you ever fall into that lane or was that not? It was, okay. Yeah, I was obsessed with, with Jocko. Yeah, who was um, yeah. yeah, I loved Jocko. I loved his whole story, even though it's tragedy. So when I moved to New York, knowing Jocko's story, I was like, okay, it was West Third Street basketball courts. Or it's the, the park, yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, just kind of, oh, this is where he hung out during that. This or that, this is where he lived. I love that. It's interesting when we talk about Jacko, one of the reasons we have this podcast, which again is coming up on 10 years, which is crazy, is Rob Trujillo was producing the Jacko documentary. Yeah. And that led to the first interview that we had on this show, which was Rob and talked about obviously Metallica, but then, and Ozzy and everything he's done, um, Mm. suicidal tendencies, but talking a lot about that Jacko documentary. It's amazing to see how somebody like Jacko impacts different players in different ways at different times. Yeah. So it's interesting, like when you, do you remember when somebody first said, oh, like, have you checked out Jacko? Because I, I think every player remembers when they first heard that album. It's a weird, it's a crazy thing. Honestly, I don't remember where I was when I first heard that. Yeah, it kind of transcends like style too, because he's he's got this attitude that's like inspiring as well. It's kind of a punk, like a jazz punk. Well, yeah, I mean, no trouble. Tangentially, the founder of it, which isn't me, this guy Corey, works with the family and does a lot of merch for Jacko. And we have a sticker of Jacko playing and it says punk jazz is what it says on the sticker. It's exactly what you were right. saying. Yeah. And also it's a yeah. lot of the criticism of that album from the non-bass players was just sort of genre jumping. It's all over the place. Right? It's yeah. just doing so much at the time. And he wanted that. Like he didn't want to just do a jazz album or a bass solo album. He wanted to just write and have these crazy songs on the album. Right. Such an interesting guy. Yeah, totally. I don't know why it would be a criticism of being stylistically diverse on the record. 
think it was a function of the time. Think about yeah, you know, traditional the late seventies. People thinking like, is it disco? Is it jazz? Is it rock? Mm-hmm. Is it is it this? We were. I mean, even when I was younger, we were very much genre based. Like me being a metalhead, even the punk side that I loved, it it was almost negated for me by the general public. It's like you're a metalhead, you're not a punk guy. You know? Yeah, you got to be put in that category. Since then, we've always been trying to break those categories apart. You are a great example, Stu, of someone who's done that. Because if we just stopped the conversation here, it would sound like you play with a lot of rock people, which you do. But you're really known for urban hip hop. The music you're doing now with 40 Hertz is a whole different thing going on. When you started writing, producing, doing the things you're doing, what were you thinking in terms of genres or the music you like? Or when did that music become really important to you also? I started getting a sense of musical identity, like my own musical identity, I think shortly after I moved to New York. And I was studying... I kind of got into electronic music and sort of researching where they're coming from. And I got turned on to dub reggae, I guess. Shortly after I moved to New York, I started up with a band that was a Afrobeat dub band, kind of like Tony Allen and dub. It was a sax led band called Topaz. And we hit the road with the Wailers. It's my first like real national tour. Opening for the Whalers. Crazy. Yeah. So I got to watch Family Man, the bass player, Aston Family Man Barrett, every night. And I watched him very closely. And I came back from that tour like a new musician and had basically started my band called Dub Trio just after that. Like right after that, we had a recording project scheduled and got a record deal with the record label Roar. You might know them from putting out Bad Brains. That, um, yeah, of course. First record, it was a cassette label. It was all punk and reggae, like CBGB's kind of punk, like television, New York Dolls, and then also reggae, like and Dub, King Tubby, Scientist, Mad Professor. And so we, I ended up making my own instrumental band with my guys, Joe Tomino and Dave Holmes, another Canadian, my idea from St. Catherine State. Well, a band called Dub Trio, and it was like a dub experiment noise punk rock electronic influence we were basically realizing we could do any style that we wanted and i guess i sort of found a little niche for myself too like by creating a sound that spans across different genres between like dub which is usually synonymous with reggae but then applying that process to different styles of music and taking that genre and just mashing it up with so many different things. It could be a dub of any kind of song, really. So the process ended up being the main thing about the band. And you take on a lot of roles when you're doing this. You're producing, you're writing, you're doing a lot. Was this always part of the plan? Were you always thinking in terms of songwriter band? Or are you thinking... I'm a bass player and I need to find a home as a bass player. What was going on professionally in your brain in terms of what yeah. you wanted to do musically? Initially, I was trying to make it as a session guy in New York and find a band and hit the road. And I gradually realized that you can't just be a bass player for hire. You need to expand your role, I think, in order to financially make it. So publishing for Warren, composing, but also there's opportunity in musical directing or producing. 
But initially I had a dub trio. We would market ourselves as a rhythm section for hire. We would do sessions as a rhythm section or backup artists and hit the road as a backing band. We ended up doing that for several years since 2004 was our first record, but we've been a rhythm section since 98. I moved to New York in 2019 and the guys were Cleveland and Charlotte, North Carolina. So we're all spread apart. Moving to LA was a big thing for me. So at that point I got much more into production and a little more of a free agent or available to go on my own. But over the years, we backed up several artists and did many records. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get into the craziness of your discography because it really spans so many genres. At what point does Matis Yahoo come into the fold? Where do you meet him? How do you become the musical director there? You were with him for a long time. Matis, he would come out to our shows in New York, like Dub Trio would be playing. I guess he saw me play with the drummer Adam Deitch from the band Lettuce. We had some residencies in Brooklyn and he came out to that first and then I invited him to a dub studio show. And I think for a little while he would be on tour and warm up before his set to our record. And so at some point he asked us to play on an album that he was doing and we ended up doing that two or three times, like a couple of different records that we had done session work for with him. And then eventually he asked us to be his backing band and it all worked out timing-wise. And we ended up doing a few tours before I was asked to run musical direct and run like, basically put the show together using backing tracks and stuff like that and like long backing tracks and did a live production. And then the next record I ended up producing. And so that role just kind of expanded and expanded over the years. And that lasted about 10 years or so. Unique artist, unique story. Yeah, he's got an amazing story and he's beloved by people all around the world. And so like, it was really, we still play together. I just got off a tour with him in the summer and well, we've gone over the world many times and it's cool. It's great. I love him. I was going to say that when you said, oh, he came down to a dub trio show, my, just my, I was going to blurt out, oh, he must've loved that. Like I could totally see just based off of the music he creates being so interested in what dub trio is doing it makes perfect sense yeah some of it's a little heavy for him but on the other hand a lot of it is kind of ambient and shoegaze and then there's like heavy dub as well and i think he gravitated towards our multiple personality but also just like the way we approached our the way we were like hungry we were we were hungry you know Literally. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say back yeah. then, yeah, there's a different type of hunger for sure. Mm -hmm. How do you figure out what a year looks like for you, Stu? Because I think about not just the discography and the work that you're doing, but you have so many interesting gigs that float in and float out. You mentioned Danny Elfman's band and just what's going on in general. You've got your solo thing happening right now. How do you map out a year? Do you know what's going to happen this year? Are you flying by the seat of your pants? Do you have the next five years mapped out? It just seems like people want to work with you. You want to do your thing. You want to do a band thing. You want to do a solo. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, I actually don't really know. Usually around this time of year, I'm like, what's happening? I kind of know what I'm doing in March. There's a few Dominic Flake shows that they just announced. So Lollapalooza in Chile, Argentina, and Brazil and Coachella in April. And I think that's all I got. 
but, but I trust. I put a lot of trust into it. Yeah, but just, but just creatively, you do have this solo EP happening now. Yes, you must be thinking. I have music. Does that music go to Dub Trio? Does it go solo? Does it go to a Lauren Hill, a Fifty Cent, the Mary J. Blunt? How do you formulate that in terms of your creative process? So far, I've been really focused. Like lately, I've been focused on my solo project. It's called oh, 40, Forty Hertz EP. Forty Hertz, yeah, it's great. It's five songs, and if you get the cassette, you get five remixes on that as well. And so I still have more music to finish. So that's my immediate thing. Like right now, I'm trying to wrap up the record because each song is basically a compilation of collaborations. Each song has exactly. a different vocalist. So I have had the music pretty much done, like a whole collection of songs to choose from. And then I'll like try to figure out who belongs on the track. And basically I've got almost all of it covered now. And once that's over, I think I'm going to be able to write for Dub Trio and work on the next Dub Trio record. But I have other production jobs that I have to do and I have, I don't really do songs for pitch. That's sort of how this solo project came about. I was writing some songs for no reason and it was just for fun. And I truly believe when you're doing something for fun, that's when the good stuff happens. So the first song that came out was with Patrick Stump from Fall Out Boy. And he's a friend of my wife's. They've been working, or they've been very friendly, like best friends, I guess, since 2004 or five. And I waited, what, like 16 or 17 years to ask him to do a vocal. It was during the pandemic, I believe, like early on in the pandemic. And he gave me back with some vocals and horns and guitar parts and he just laced it. So that's kind of what got much in the door for this project. And I did two or three other songs that were just for fun and that like that collection of songs that we pitched to Dine Alone and then now we have a label world. And so going forward, I started writing more music that was like specific to my, with the pretext that it's my project, you know? Um, so over that period, I started developing my own sound and for this project and loving it. I think I'm just going to keep going with that and continue writing for potential collaborations. I think I could put them out on my own with Joel's label partner. I can't wait to announce the other collaborations on the rest of the record. It's, um, it's kind of mind-boggling mind for me. By the time we publish this, it'll, it will be known because it'll probably come, be coming out in the new year. So by right. then people, right? Like if you're listening now, we already know is what we're saying. <laughs> so we're, <laughs> Which is cool. It's a cool thing. It's a very, very cool thing. What do you consider to be your big break? Do you think that Dub Trio is what opened the door to some of the amazing collaborations you've been invited to take part in? Was it being a part of Matis Yahoo? Do you think about what was the thing that really opened the door here? Or was it Berkeley? Well, I think like my success story really falls in that I married my wife, who's so awesome. And like marrying a Berkeley girl is like winning the lottery because there's not too many of them. At least for those who don't know, tell us who the wife is. She is, she's Janice Brooks, Janice Cruz Brooks, and she works in the audio side. She's a mixer and editor and works in television mostly, but then she's working on the records with me. And like right around when we first started dating, I did a session for 50 Cent, which then was kind of a big break for me because then I got the artist visa that I needed. Because to get an artist visa in the United States, you need like a Grammy or a gold record. 
or Grammy nomination. And I had neither until 57. So he sponsored my immigration and everything. That was a huge, huge opportunity for me and like changed my life. And then fast forward, like, um, I mean, with Dub Trio, that kind of gave me a brand in a way, which is helpful. And then a little reputation within the music industry. And it seemed like we're not very well known, but we're known within musical circles. So then that helps like with like networking over the years, I think I've benefited from that, like outside of Dub Trio because Dub Trio like was a, was like a business card basically. And then when I met Danny, well, Dub Trio had done some stuff with Mike Patton. We the from Faith and More this Faith No More, yeah. So he sang on our records and we played in his band, Leaping Tall. And when I met Danny, when I had first moved to LA, I think he was super into Mike Patton by coincidence. I I was just like, you check this out and he loved it. And so we started talking about doing the Coachella performances. That was a big break for me, just like getting in a room with Danny and and clicking with him. We really hit it off musically and personally a few opportunities then came from that we did it once the pandemic canceled coachella danny went into isolation and wrote like 20 songs and then we planned a recording project and made an album with the band at some point during mixing he asked me if i would collaborate on some remixes and i basically produced or executive produced a whole companion release of remixes and re- reimagined versions of the song. Basically, I was able to, I had the opportunity to reach out to anybody I thought would be a good collaborator for Danny and put together this whole companion release. So I ended up producing some of the tracks with him, a couple with Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, Ghost Main, Blixa Bargeld from Answers and New Bouton and the Bad Seeds, Square Pusher. Fever 333, Kid 606, Health, Boris, all these incredible artists. So that just came out this past August. My brain isn't working great on my memory, but in Montreal, Danny was here for a movie. And I met him either at a Faith No More show or it could have been Tim Machine with Bowie. It was one of those. Mm. And pe- people didn't know who he was. He was just hanging out in this semi-large venue bar. And I always find that funny with Danny because I'm a child of the 80s. So Oingo Boingo was a thing. Yeah. But most people don't know. It's like they either know he's the movie guy or if you're 80s, it's like. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I we grew were up watching his scores and. But I also knew about them. Yeah. Yeah. But I also knew about Oingo Boingo too, but I didn't make the connection until much later. Yeah, it's surprising to people. Like, Oingo Boingo was that guy? Yeah, it was that guy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Another cool gig that I would love to ask you about before you wrap up is Saturday Night Live Band. That's incredible that you get this opportunity here and there to sit in. How does that come to be? And what is that gig like? So my wife worked on the show for about five or six seasons. I guess I kind of was around, I guess. (laughs) And so when I met, I guess, James, I ended up subbing for James Genus, who's the bass player in the house band. And Herbie Hancock was picking up his tour. So whenever James was gone, I got the call a couple of times and was doing that. But I mean, I think largely it has to do with just the fact that I was around and on somebody's mind when they thought of a bass, needing a bass player. 
Um, but that's a real gig where you got to read, you got to know what's going on. It moves pretty quickly. That's a serious gig. Oh man. So one day I just got a call call from Lenny Pickett, who's the musical director and sax player for the band. And you might know him from Tower of Power. He's a legend. Like like one of my favorite sax players since I was a kid. Like one of the only, well, anyway, he hit me up and asked me to come in. He was like, I apologize. Do you mind if like you come in with your bass and we can just see if you can hang? And he's like, keep up. He's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I am asking you to do this. I'm like, no, I get it. So I came in and he asked me to read some music. And some of it was like, be like a Jimi Hendrix tune or like Jackie Wilson. I remember was one of the songs. So that's a pretty easy song, Higher. Pretty easy song. And I could, I could probably play it without needing to read, you know, so. Same with the Jimmy tune, but they, there were a few curveballs in there because it was like their own arrangement. And so it was like very familiar, but then also different. So you could, it was evident when I was like reading and not reading, you know, he's like, yeah, totally. <laughs> and also it was Dr. Luke, the producer. No, the name. Yeah. He was the guitar player in the band before, and he had left like this Galen Kruger keyboard amp and it was like a little practice amp. It was like the size of a smaller than a lunchbox. And that was basically my audition bass amp. And I had active bass. And as soon as I plugged in, it just was like farting and it was terrible. And I fell off my low end and it was like, blank. it was like the worst. And he just kind of got a kick out of like my struggle. He was just kind of laughing at me because I was like, this is terrible, bro. And his comment was, uh, well, like you're not, not a reader. So I took that as a compliment from him and I, yeah, I got the gig and our, it's amazing. It's cool. And so Janice and I were sharing Ubers to 30 rock together and it was kind of like a dream. Amazing. I mean, your, your life is so incredible, Stu. I mean, I know it's Uh, maybe hard for you to reflect on it, but you just look at, I guess, you know, talk about 50 cent and Mike Patton and Danny Elfman and Perry Farrell and just Dovetree. It's. It's an amazing journey to see. And it's one of those things that I get really curious about what's next, because even listening to the 40 Hertz EP, it's not stuff I wouldn't expect, but it's always surprising. And I think you have this real thing about you, about creating music and sounds and grooves that are very surprising, which is unique. It's a unique thing to find in a bass player. Thank you so much. I take that compliment to heart. Thank you so much. That's great. Well, let people know where they can find out more about the 40 Hertz EP or just where's the place online that some of the chaos in your life is corralled into one centralized area. Yeah, I guess I have an updated website now, stubasiebrooks.com. S-T-U-B-A-C-I-E, Brooks. That's cool. Yeah, and I guess like it's all available there and it has some more information on all my other projects there as well. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for your time, Stu. I appreciate it. I'd love to do it again. You know, another time we could talk more. Mm.